0: So the title of today's message is The True Anointing. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 8, starting in verse 10, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. There's a story about 70 years ago about a new vacuum cleaner salesman down in Tennessee. One day he was out going door-to-door in the rural areas selling Kirby's, and he's really, really excited about what he thinks this vacuum cleaner can do. And he wants us to sell as many as he can. And his first visit of the day was to a farmhouse at the end of a long country road. The man of the house was out working in the fields and the salesman figured, I'm gonna have an easy sell because all that is here is the wife and he's going to, and she's gonna want one of these. And so he knocks on the door and he starts a sale pitches as she lets him in. And he showed her how easy it is to use, how light it is, all the attachments, and he went on and on and on again about how powerful this vacuum cleaner was. He said, man, this is the most exciting vacuum cleaner you have ever seen. It will clean your house from top to bottom. You only have to pay just a little bit down and pay a small amount every month, and I'll leave this one with you right here. And the farm wife was very, very impressed. I mean, she was. Everybody wants to have a little bit of help cleaning. She said, You know, this sounds really good, but can it really do all that you say? And the guy interrupts her right away. Salesman, you notice they interrupt you when you start questioning what they're talking about to further reinforce what they did. And the salesman interrupted her and he said, You know what? You see that big pile of dirt over there? Right, right there on the door, it has all those fur balls and bugs and flies and everything else in it right there. And, and the housewife said, yeah, I was just sweeping the floor when you came in and I didn't have, have time to sweep it up. He goes, I will tell you what, if my vacuum cleaner can't suck that up, I will eat that pile of dirt with all the bugs and the fur balls and everything else. And the housewife looked at him and she got up, walks into the kitchen, comes back with a spoon, And he said, well, what's that for? She goes, well, to eat it, because we don't have any electricity here. (laughs) What's the moral of this story? You're going to be sucking dirt the rest of your life if you have no power. Last week, we talked about the call of God on your lives. And today, we're going to be talking about the power that's available for that calling. We're going to be talking about the anointing. And in Pentecostals and especially charismatic circles, this is a very widely misunderstood and a very widely misapplied concept. So today we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about the anointing, what the understanding is from scriptures, seeing what it is and why it is important in our lives. And we're going to start today by looking at the Old Testament to see the first formal example of anointing as seen in the scriptures. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 10. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle, everything in it, and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all of its utensils, and basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then he brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, them, tied sashes around them, and fastened caps on them, as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just take this lesson about the anointing and use it to increase our trust in you. Use it to help us to focus what we plug into in this world. Whether it's plugged into you or plugged into the things of this earth. Father God, at the end of this message, let us all be able to say that we know our plug-ins are plugged into your power source, Father. And learn what it really means to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I ask this in your name. Amen. First, we're going to look at anointing within the Old Testament. And as you're doing your Old Testament chronological reading uh, plan that we're going through, we're in the midst of the intricacies of the Old Testament worship. And anyone, as you read this, if you've had a background in Roman Catholicism or even the Lutheran church, you're going to see some parallels between what they did in the Old Testament and the way that a Catholic or Lutheran would worship, particularly with their consecration rites. And and, uh, temple worship are very similar often to what you see in a, a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic church. In Moses' time, the anointing was symbolized through the smearing or pouring on of oil. It was a symbol of God coming upon them. And oil was a very common substance in the Old Testament. We don't realize quite how common this is, but this is something that every household would have. I mean, even shepherds used oil, didn't they? When the Lord is compared to our shepherd in Psalm 23, it says that he anoints my head with oil and my cup runneth over. Shepherds would take that oil and and anoint the heads of their sheep because sheep would be grazing and and get all cut up and everything because they're not very smart animals and they just graze their way right into a briar patch. And so they'd get cut up and a shepherd would put oil on their face to keep them from getting infected and keep bugs away from them and everything else. People used it to protect their skin and hair because the climate of Israel and the climate of that whole Middle East is full of sand, sun, and heat. So people would put it on their skin, they put it in their hair, they put it all around themselves to keep bugs away from them and keep the sand and, and the wind and, and all that from harming their skin. Both men and women would use oil as a form of deodorant, it was also used to, um, as a cosmetic. An example of that would be Esther. You remember that she would have to sulk in oil for a year before she was deemed fit to be presented to the king. That was part of her beauty treatments, that she would have all this oil applied to her. But in the scripture that we read here, we're talking about the holy anointing oil. And the holy anointing oil was created from the finest spices of the time. It was meant to point to the extravagant worth that we know that god is worthy of and once that oil was made once it was blessed by the priest everything it touched according to the levitical worship system became what was called kadesh which meant most holy when a person received that anointing as aaron was done doing in the scriptures here he became kadesh or most holy that meant the definition of Kadesh meant to be set apart. You are no longer a normal person. If you, if you even poured the oil into this water bottle right there, this water bottle would become most holy. It would be set apart for temple use and set apart as separated onto God. Another thing that Kadesh means is most holy, without blemish, without sin, without defect. There is nothing morally wrong with this Person or object. So, because it's been set apart from God. That's, that's the meaning of Kadesh. It wasn't necessarily something spiritual or magic in itself. It wasn't that the holy oil had a supernatural blessing on it, there was an impartation from God to the recipient of that oil, whether it was something physical or something as a human being. Something was imparted upon that that made it Kadesh. Now to define impartation, impartation means to be made known, to tell, to relate, or to disclose. It means to be give, bestow, communicate. Or, in in reference to the anointing, it means to grant a part or a share of. Let me illustrate this just a little bit because we're, we're dealing with a, a couple of complex theological terms here, so I'm going to illustrate this a little bit from a, a situation from my own life. When I was a new Christian, I was invited to um, take part in a young man's um, group called the SEALS, and it stood for Street Evangelism Action League. And we would meet on Tuesdays, and somebody would teach a lesson, usually one of the more senior people, and then we'd spend time in prayer. And weather permitting, then we'd go out witnessing on the street. And one week, the leader asked me to teach the next lesson. Now, I was a pretty new Christian at the time, probably less than two years old. And I had no real Bible training, but he thought it would be a good idea for me to, as a way to mature in the faith to put together a Bible lesson and teach it. So he was kind of doing that to stretch me and to push me into doing it. And I had read the Bible through by that time, but theology and and how it all worked together was still kind of a disjointed mess in my mind. Um, But I, I agreed to it, and so I studied, I put together some notes, and then I showed up that Tuesday to teach. It was a disaster, honestly. I mean, my points didn't mesh, everybody looked bored, And there were a lot of guys looking at each other kind of with small smiles on their face like, yeah, who invited this guy to teach? And I was never asked again to teach to that group. I totally bombed my chance at teaching. But then something happened. A couple years later, I was called to the ministry And very early in my studies, I was asked to speak at one of our pastors' Sunday schools. Pastor Vern was a visitation pastor, kind of like what Pastor Roger is to us. And he had his own Sunday school class over in in one, it was called Broker Hall, named after the founder of that church. And it was more or less a church, an hour-long Sunday school slash church service that all the movers and shakers and elders of the church would attend. And so going and speaking to this group was very nerve-wracking. I mean, you're you're going up before the big people in the church, the movers, the shakers, the elders. And I had to, to teach a lesson to these people. But I prepared the lesson and I taught it, and everybody all of a sudden loved what I had to say. And several of the senior saints told me that they were convicted in very deep ways and would be making some changes in their life. And at the end of the Sunday school the elders and Pastor Vern laid hands on me and blessed my studies and that God would somehow, within the next couple weeks, confirm my calling to me. The next day, Monday morning, getting ready for work, I opened my Bible for my devotional time. Now before this, I would always hear God speak to me through his word, but it was in little bite-sized chunks. I would read the word and I would meditate on it and God would always show me a truth through it but now it was like somebody stuck a fire hose in my mouth and cranked the whole thing open. I was, whole sermons were flying into my mind as I read the word of God. I would look at the scripture, I would see patterns, I would see teaching outlines, I would see the cultural significance, and I would say how to apply it for today. God had imparted an anointing to empower my calling. And many times, The anointing or impartation does exactly that. It confirms to you a direction or calling that God has upon your life. And in our scripture reading, that is exactly what happened to Aaron here. Remember where Aaron came from? Remember the whole golden calf scenario? Who was the leader behind that? Aaron. Aaron made the golden calf. Aaron made an object of worship that almost had God wipe out Israel at that point and start over with Moses. He was a failure as a high priest up until that point. He had a calling, but he had no impartation or anointing to carry that calling. But now Aaron's getting that anointing. And that impartation of God is coming upon him to help him be that successful leader and priest. And the anointing always involves some type of impartation. And that's a critical point to understand it because the the word anointing just gets thrown around all the time. It involves impartation to help you live up to a calling. And God gives all of us a calling in life. We talked about that last week. He has a call from eternity past when he decided that you were going to be born, he had put a calling on your life. Whether you're a sinner or a saint, he has a calling for each and every human being. And since you have a calling, you need an anointing to carry that calling. You need the impartation of the Holy Spirit to give fuel to your particular fire so that it burns brightly for the whole world to see. And in the Old Testament, that calling and impartation was only given to a select few, the priests, the prophets, the kings. What they had in part, we have now in fullness through Jesus Christ what God had intended for all human beings. And that's what the anointing is and how it was applied in the Old Testament. Now let's look at the New Testament truth about it this morning. The New Testament truth is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have committed your life to him, if you have made him Lord and Savior, your sins are gone. He has paid for our sins. Therefore, we are automatically have Kadesh before God. That means we are all automatically, through Jesus Christ, set apart and considered most holy before God, at least positionally. Even if it doesn't feel like that in life, positionally before God, when he looks at you, no matter how bad you're messing up in life right now, he sees holiness. So the anointing within the church isn't about imparting holiness. You have that through Jesus Christ. And it's based on Jesus' merit, not your own. Because of the Holy Spirit takes up residence with you and anyone who calls Jesus Lord and Savior. Therefore, the anointing and impartation that only a few experienced in the Old Testament is now available for everybody, including you. In the Old Testament, it fueled only a particular gift. For us living in the New Testament age, we have the whole personhood of God existing within us through the Holy Spirit. The impartation of the Holy Spirit brings the entire Godhead to bear on all parts of our lives as we submit to him. And this personhood of God that exists within you is manifested or made known in three primary ways. The first way it's manifested is by receiving the mind of God. And the mind of God is shown to us in two ways. First and primarily, the objective way that God speaks to us is through his written word, the Bible. The word in the Greek language is logos. It means a written word. It means doctrine. It is objective truth. It is something that we can go back to and look at and say, that is truth. It is not subjective at all. It is saying, this is truth. It's written down. Everybody can see it and reference it. And it's a standard by which all other truth is measured. The logos is like a ruler or a tape measure for us. If you're building a multi-story house, and you're building you decide, I'm going to build this house and I'm going to have 10-foot ceilings in it, do you eyeball the framing? Or do you pull out a tape measure and measure it out? You're going to measure it out, aren't you? Because if not, your house is going to look pretty weird. And it's probably going to be very unstable. But that's what happens when people put the second way of knowing the mind of God in front of the first one. And that second way of knowing the mind of God is through the Rhema word. The Rhema word is the spoken word of God. When Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the, the word, the Greek word for word there is rhema. So he's talking about a vital relationship with God where God is speaking into your heart on a daily basis. Now the rhema word needs to be confirmed by the written word. It can't contradict it. Rhema has always always has to agree with that plainly written and historical meaning of the logos or it is to be rejected. And the person, if it's speaking it to you, should be also rebuked and rejected. This is critical to the health of the body of Christ and to the spiritual health of the individual Christian. You see, when rhema takes priority, that's how cults start, isn't it? When a person says, I receive something from God, like Joseph Smith with the Mormon church, or Russell with the, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, said, well, I received a word from God. And they form a cult off of that rhema word because they don't use the logos to measure it by. And it's critical that you and I know the mind of God before we dare start using it to level his authority. And that's a second thing that uh, the way that the Godhead is manifested within us through the anointing is that we get to operate in his authority. Now, when the Holy Spirit reveals the mind of God to us through both the Logos word and the Rhema word, we can begin to act in God's authority. And that's an incredible privilege, isn't it? It's an incredible privilege available to us as believers to speak the very words of the king of the universe and to exercise that authority. To use the authority of God... In, in an old way of thinking, it means basically to say, in the name of the king, I am pronouncing this. That's a pretty weighty thing to say, isn't it? But when you speak in the name of the king, you better know the mind of the king, shouldn't you? Let me illustrate a wrong understanding of authority here. We kind of see this in some of the, the more fringe, charismatic people. A student of a popular charismatic Bible school had been praying for a car. He prayed, he fasted, he named it, he claimed it. And finally, somebody heard about it and they gave him a car. The night after he received the car, he's driving home from work late at night and a jeer jumps out in front of him, causing him to swerve violently. And the car ended up smashed against a big oak tree. Total, It was total, just demolished the police and fire department showed up and they found him pacing and shouting and praying back and forth saying, God, I don't lay claim to this wreck. Restore your blessing upon me. Now, if your car is wrapped around an oak tree, you should probably get used to the reality you're being faced with there. I'm not saying that God couldn't face it. I would just simply thank God that I'm alive. See, it's one of the biggest misunderstandings about the anointing and and the biggest problem I have with name-it-and-claim-it doctrine. You're assuming the mind of God in a situation where he has not spoken, either through the Logos word or even a legitimate Rhema word. And when we claim the authority of the king, it should be with great caution, a great amount of fear and trembling, because we're putting God's name on the line in this situation. So you really have to know his mind before you claim his authority. But when we do have the mind of God, we, when we know we are acting in his authority, that's when the power gets to come. And the third way of the personhood of God is seen through the anointing and through the impartation is, and the way that's manifested in our lives is through the power of God. And the Greek language has a word for the power of God and it is dunamis, That word means supernatural power that is not normally available to a human being. And that power comes from God. let me make that very clear. The power comes from God. That's very critical. It does not come from us. It comes from God. It comes from knowing his mind, his authority, and his will concerning the use of that power. Because that power is meant to glorify him and not ourselves. And this is one of the main errors we see in teaching about the anointing or the impartation of the Holy Spirit among some in the charismatic church. When we were at our first church, Shani and I went to Appleton to see what was then a popular preacher among charismatic people. We heard a lot about this person's gift. We heard a lot about his ability to impart spiritual gifts or holy laughter or immense joy because of how God had blessed him. And the whole service, he was talking about his, his, his gifting, his anointing, his ministry. There was very little about Jesus, God, repentance, holiness, or serving. It was all about his gifting and what he wanted to impart on you through his gifting. And the whole thrust of the service was just about receiving from God to get some sort of spiritual thrill. And the time came for prayer, and the preacher asked everybody who wanted a fresh anointing from God to come up and be prayed for. And dozens of people lined up in the front, and they're falling all over the place as this man prayed for them, and the power of God hit them. Now, I believe that God can impart giftings into his people. I believe that God can impart refreshing into his people. I even somewhat hesitantly, because it gets abused a lot, that's why I say hesitantly, I believe that God can come over a person with such an overwhelming presence that it can cause a person's legs to buckle and and fail, and they can fall over. I do believe in that. I think it's way overemphasized in some churches. I believe if God's power is touching you like that, it is coming to give you an impartation. But remember, God's impartation and his power comes with a catch. He comes with it. You can't separate God's power from his person. It's integral to who he is. And if God is imparting some of himself on you, you better believe it's going to form a new appreciation for his holiness and a new commitment to living right before him. I once heard a pastor say about about people falling in the spirit, being prayed for. He goes, I don't care for people falling on the floor during a prayer service if they ain't going to walk right when they get back up. The power of God is not a carnival sideshow. It's very serious business. It requires knowing his mind, carrying that authority before you, before you try to access the power of God. And I just wanted to put those cautions out there, because having an anointing to know the mind of God, acting as authority, and using His power is the right of all kingdom citizens. I'm not trying to talk anybody out of seeking the anointing or impartation of the Holy Spirit. But they are to be used to further the kingdom and bring glory to the King and not us. Now we spent some time talking about the misuse of the word anointing or impartation. So I want to discuss the truth of why we need it for today. We talk about it fueling our gifting, f- being the fuel of the fire that God has put inside of us. And that is one of the most important things that we need the anointing for so that we can operate in our giftings. The second reason is that we struggle not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places or the spiritual realm. We're in a war. And we can't fight Satan on our terms, in our flesh, because you'll lose every time. That's his, that's his battlefield. That's where he has all the advantage. And Satan is an ambush predator. He lies and wait until he has the advantage before he attacks. He's, he's kind of like a, a predator that we might all be familiar with. If you've ever been down in Florida, they have alligators down there, or Louisiana. An alligator will lay absolutely still in the water either right next to the bank or on the bank next to the water. Alligators' whole goal to get his next meal is to get that meal into his environment, which is the water. Once he has his mouth clamped down upon you, he's going to drag you into the water and roll you over until it drowns. It's the same way Satan works. He needs to get you into his environment to do his damage. And that's why we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need the impartation of the Godhead to come and live within us. Because we needed to stay out of Satan's realm as much as possible and to exist in what we were created for to live in the spiritual realms. And when we get that, the anointing and everything that comes with it will have the power, will have the authority, and will have the mind of God. Because God himself comes with all of that. And it doesn't matter how gifted, talented, or skilled you are. If you don't have God's presence, if you don't have that impartation of the Holy Spirit upon you, you're just going to be sucking dirt like the salesman in the beginning of the message. Let's all rise.